0: You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, go to NaturalStacks.com. Oh, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McCormick. You can find more information about me at SeanMcCormick.com or on my YouTube channel, Sean McCormick, where I link to all of the optimal performance episodes through that YouTube channel. And I also direct you to go to listen to these and watch these interviews on YouTube. You can go to Natural Stacks YouTube channel and see those there. On today's episode, we're joined by Sean Webb. Sean Webb probably knows the human mind better than anybody else that I have come across. Um, Sean Webb is a leading expert on hacking the mind for happiness and well-being. And his story is really fascinating, hearing his transformation from um, this this spontaneous, likely DMT flush that, that gave him sort of this download of awareness for how the mind works. And now he's developed into the website um, and two books, uh, among others, called Mind Hacking Happiness. Um, This is a really interesting conversation. If you're curious about how your mind works, how you can uh, optimize happiness, how you can get into a happier state, this is it, man. He gives you great tools in this episode, and um, he's really a pleasure to talk to. Uh, In this episode, we cover uh, how we can observe our emotions and have the choice for whether or not we want to use them. Uh, we understand we talk about understanding the emotional process how you can avoid emotional fallout how naming your emotions are effective ways to manage them we talk about how to not identify your personality with one emotion or another this is high level mental control this is uh skills and tools in order for you to live your most optimal mental life in your emotional life And uh, this is a really fascinating episode. I know that you guys are going to dig it as much as I do. Um, I want to make a quick ask here. Uh, You know, I know that a lot of you don't miss any of these episodes, but I know that you're not really sharing this with people in your life. And so I will ask humbly if you would please share this episode, post it to Facebook, tell your friends, and also subscribe to this episode or to this podcast um this sort of grassroots growth of the Optimal Performance Podcast just relies on you guys supporting. Um, we don't have a giant marketing team to, to, to blow this podcast up. We, uh, I humbly deliver this content week in and week out. And it really is up to you guys, if you would, um, to help share this message. Uh, for, for people like myself who listen to a ton of podcasts, it's really how I learn uh, is through podcasts because I can do that while I do other things. Um, I make a point of leaving reviews for a that I that I really love and subscribing and sharing them when, when one episode or another really resonates with me. Uh, on that note, um, I have released a program called The Full Moon Reset. Uh, I did a podcast dedicated to it a couple episodes back, and it is getting amazing results for people. Um, we all need a moment to audit our lives, how we consume media, what we eat, Uh, And I've created a protocol that you can use uh, that's really effective over the course of 15 or 16 days to know your true self at a deeper level. So go to fullmoonreset.com and check that out. And one last thing before I jump into this episode with Sean Webb is I'd love to hear your ideas for guests. Please send me an email, sean at seanmccormick.com or sean at naturalsax.com and let me know who you'd like to hear are there people that I don't know that you love? Let me know and I'll get them on the podcast so we can dive deep into it. Um, I'd love your feedback. I'd love your information. Um, so share it with me without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Sean Webb, you're listening to the optimal performance podcast and I'm your host, Sean McCormick. It's the OPP. I'm a performance coach, a wellness entrepreneur, a blogger, a speaker, a biohacker, and it's my privilege to bring to you the leading experts in the field of performance. So let's dig right in.
1: You know, I mean, the I wrote the first book that explains emotions and defines them in a very logical fashion to the point that we're now working with some scientists to help define emotions logically for artificial emotional intelligence. Um, all of that new science came out of the consciousness expansion experience that I found connected with meditation and this, what I presume to be a DMT flush because I read about these trip reports online and yada, yada, yada. So I'll talk about that.
0: Yeah. Well, I just pressed record because I didn't want to miss a a (laughs) syllable. So we're, we're going, let's start there. Why don't we start there? Um, you were, you were in a meditation session and you had like, uh, the transportation to the the land of machine elves uh, through the veil and <laughs> in, into uh, infinity.
1: Yeah, basically. Uh, yeah, so we were just talking about uh, these books that I wrote, and the books that I wrote are, are mind hacking habitus, and, and I basically I like, just to kind of explained how the mind works, right? And I came to that realization of how the mind works through, um, like, I let me back up just a little bit. I'll tell you how. Yeah. I, <laughs> Got into this whole thing. All right. So I started out um, a while back and was going to college and got hooked up with the most advanced supercomputing company on the planet, uh, who hired me before I even graduated college. And so then from there, I kind of climbed up through the ranks really quickly and found some success and solved some problems that they had and yada, yada, yada. And I found a, a, this large level of success in high tech. And so I was this, you know, star kid, uh, making a bunch of money, bought my own house at 27 without a co had a, you know, Jeep grand Cherokee, a speedboat, a flashy motorcycle, a 69 firebird convertible, banana yellow. I was tooling around town with it kind of got the girl's eyes. Uh, you know, I, I had good relationships. I had a decent relationship that I thought with a higher power. Um, and, uh, but I, you know, after i bought the house and i was looking out over the lawn uh and i was waiting for the stereo installers to come by i was like man what's next and there was with that what next was like kind of a moment of dread right and i was like wait a second what's going on there right what's that moment of dread what's that what's that thing that just rose within me that said you're not there yet like you have everything that the American dream says you're supposed to have to be happy and you're supposed to have happiness. You know, you got friends coming over in a little bit that, you know, we're having a party tonight, you know, we're going to fill the house. Uh, and we're now we're already asking what's next. And I thought, when does this end? And so then I wanted to take a step back and say, okay, what, what did I miss in this whole happiness equation? And what do I need to figure out? So that's when I started to dive into like, Maybe it's a spiritual thing. Maybe I don't have the spirituality thing locked down as much as I thought I had. And so I started reading the world religions and, you know, anthology world religions and the comparative texts and all this other stuff and uh, learned about this thing called um, enlightenment through Zen meditation and that's really much all i had learned about it i I read a book called introduction to zen by dt suzuki and i learned that zen folks meditate and they try to cease all conscious thought and then suddenly the universe opens up and you understand absolutely everything yada yada yada. that's all i knew about it that's all i knew about it so then i started meditating but i started feeling a a like kind of a a lightning inside myself it kind of it kind of got better like and I learned later the science of meditation is friggin amazing, right? What it does for your brain is is Incomparable to just about anything that you can do like it's as good as exercise It's as good as getting good sleep It's you know, it's the but the health benefits for your mind and your brain for meditation are amazing And I didn't I just kind of felt that before I learned about all the science and stuff I just kind of felt that I started feeling that so I kept doing it and then probably less than 2 months in i went into this meditation cuz a lot of times i would just fall asleep but i went into this meditation and um uh, about 20 minutes into this meditation where i went into the meditation the first thing i thought was okay look you know i'm looking for these answers i don't know if there's any answers out there if there's more to know i'm ready and i just kind of reached out into the universe with this message i was like look i'm here i'm ready to listen what do you got and um so I started meditating and I started and I knew that the focus of meditation was to cease all conscious thought. So that was my focus. This particular meditation, it was I'm going to cease all conscious thought. And I understood the conscious thought was an image is a thought, a sound is a thought, uh, you know, any passing little tidbit is a thought. And, and when you get into these deep meditations, you figure out how much your brain wants to interrupt you with noise during these things. And um, so every now and then I'd hear a dog bark or a car drive by or something like that. And I'd be, oh, there's a thought. And then I'd be like, you know, every now and then, am I thinking anything? Oh, shit, that's a thought, (laughs) you know. And um, after about 20 minutes into this thing, I finally got my mind to completely silence itself. And this was the first time in my life was the only experience I'd ever had about having complete silence and solitude in my own head and i didn't really think this is weird but i was just like wow you know i i realized this is a different space to be in where there's nothing going on in my mind and uh it was at that point that something shifted within my mind and it, and i felt this energy started to to build up within me and of course this could be you know, I know scientifically this could be just the brain doing what it does when, you know, your patterns change. Like your brain is doing what it does all the time, you know, sensing your environment, looking for threats, yada, yada, yada. You're thinking about what you want to have for lunch tomorrow. You're thinking about what you need to get done for work this week. But then when that po- that pattern changes, other patterns can arise. Other patterns can open up. And So what happened for me in that moment was this huge feeling of energy started to arise um, in my consciousness that blew me away and it started to grow in an exponential form that was just alarming. I mean, I thought literally, Holy cow, what is this? And the first thing that my mind jumped to was, am I dying? Because there was some kind of like a universal, immediate energetic buildup that I had never experienced before in my life. And I thought this isn't like, I'm in my house, you know, I I knew I was in my house, I'm in my bedroom, just kind of lying on the bed trying to meditate and this is not something that comes from that existence. So I was like, what the hell's going on? So, and I talk about this in my second book, Mind Hacking Habitus Volume Two, which was basically just one book that turned out to be so friggin' huge that we had to chop it down the middle and make it Volume One and Volume Two. So if you're into this like spiritual stuff or this deep mind stuff, this ancient like meditation enlightenment stuff, go read Volume One, then Volume Two. If you just need to get your life figured out and your mind figured out and get shit in order, go read volume one because that'll explain how to do that. But I tell this story in volume two in detail, but there was probably a thousand years of experiences that happened after that, which is why I thought I was dead up until the moment that I kind of reentered my body. But what I figured out later um, by studying the science was that because of time dilation, because your mind can be doing a ton of different things at the same time and and creating a lot of different experiences all at the same time, et cetera, that what was probably happen, happening was there's an endogenous chemical in your brain that creates um, the ability to for the brain to go into an overdrive, basically. And it's a psychedelic, officially. I mean, it's on a controlled substance list for the United States and for a lot of other countries. And you, if you're caught with it in your pocket, you will go to jail for a long time, but your body makes it. And a lot of other stuff out on the planet makes it grass trees. You know, it's a, it's a very common chemical. It's a neurotransmitter. Uh, but I believe it might've been a five methyl flush through my brain that sent my brain into this overdrive that shut off all my bodily senses because I you know there, there was no sight, there was no sound, there was no touch, there was less as far as a uh, body sense goes. But then <clears throat> during that whole process, there was this portion of existence where I tapped into this higher level of intelligence and wisdom. It was like a bank of knowledge and wisdom that you just don't have access to in your normal waking awareness. Where I understood absolutely everything. I understood the secret of black holes. I understood the speak, secret of space- time. I understood the you know all of the math and geometry and multiple dimensions that come together to create the whole thing and mass. and I couldn't bring it back to my brain so it's not like I, I have it all today. I have a, a small chunk of it, which was what we're doing with this cool new science that I've been working with these world leading experts on, which is kind of cool. But um, <clears throat> there was that space where you could you could access that. And so, um, from that, when I, when I figured out that I wasn't dead and that there was some kind of an experience that I was having, who knows how with my mind, um, you know, accessing some non-local field of consciousness. And I did a lot of science after this and I figured out what could be happening there. But I brought some of that back, uh, some of the knowledge back, just the knowledge that of, you know, how the mind works, how our pain and suffering works, how our emotions come to be um how to be able to hack all that stuff which is what i put in the red book and um from there my personal life changed and i started talking to other people and i said well i figured out how my my personal bs works and i figured out how to, how to hack it and how to stop it how to fix it And they were like, wow, that's kind of how my stuff works, too. And so I was like, oh, that's interesting. Well, let me let me dig into this a little bit more. So let me read some more books. Let me figure out who figured this out originally. And maybe I can put my experience to that and understand it even a little better. And what I found was no one had written about this ever before. And this was unfinished business from Aristotle's time. And I found that out by just going to one of the world's leading experts who had spoken about this on the stage of TED, uh, Roz Picard at MIT. And I said, Roz, what's going on? What's the book that I missed? You know, um, I got this cool little model of how emotions work and how our pain and suffering works, you know, tell me the, the book that I missed, you know, hand me my hat and pat me on my ass on the way out the door and say, nice try, you know, whatever it is. Uh, I can't be the guy that figured this out. So tell me who figured it out. And we went through it and she's like, no, no one has anything close to that and it's probably the most elegant model that we have to explain the cognitive catalysis of human emotions gave me numbers of her colleagues who had been working on this for decades which this work was ahead of i found out later that the work that i had put together the models that i had put together and the definitions that i put together were probably a couple of decades forward of what the ekmans had been doing and and paul ekman is like this god in psychology world of emotions and emotion science stuff like that and the, um, his, he and his daughter work together, um, in trying to understand emotions and they come at it from the data side, the science side, and, and which I totally trust. And and those guys are awesome by the way. I love them both. Um, I met Eve uh, just a few years ago and, um, their model of putting the emotion stuff together from the data side of figuring out, Oh man, you know, cool stuff that people have missed was exactly hmm. like carbon copy of the stuff that i kind of went, "Mm, you know, here's how it works. And, um, so I thought, well, that's kind of cool. And so, um, that taught me that my experience that I had evoked from my own mind at that point had some validity. Like it wasn't just an illusion. It wasn't just a a hallucination, a meaningless hallucination. It wasn't just some kind of, you know, fluke, whatever. And, And as I started to dig deeper, I was like, Hmm, you know what? The the, the whole, the whole process of creation and discovery period, even like Einstein said stuff like this, he's like, you don't, you don't solve a problem that you have. He goes, you think about it, you chew on it, but then, you know, you sit with it for a while. And then the, and then the, the answer simply just comes from your body. It comes from your mind. It comes from, it comes from someplace else that isn't you. And I thought, that's basically what I kinda went through, except I went through an accelerated version of it. It's like I tapped into the source of energy, knowledge, wisdom, existence, intelligence, whatever it was, and brought this stuff out and then was able to spew it out into a couple of books. <clears throat> and I thought, well, okay, maybe I should be maybe I should start trusting this stuff. And so then, you know, I put out the mind hacking happiness books and it started changing a whole bunch of people's lives and I started to get invitations to speak at science conferences. And, uh, and, and these world leading experts were like hanging out with me and talking, which blew my mind. I mean, like I got, I got to go to the science of consciousness conference and, um, hang out with some of the people that talked there. And I mean, these are the smartest people. I had no idea that this was one of the most prestigious conferences in the world on, I was just like, somebody told me I should go. I put in a little thing and they're like, yeah, come on. So then I went and I'm in the presenter suite thing. And uh, hanging out and talking with David Chalmers, and and he like raved about my little presentation thing, and he took he took the only picture that I had of it. <laughs> so I give I get to give picture credit, image credit to David Chalmers for my little spiel at, at consciousness, which was really cool. It's like wow, that's that's like surreal, right? But then, um, you know, basically I started trusting it. And I started sharing it out to the world, and what happened was um, I was able to kind of figure out how the human mind worked to a way that we can explain it to somebody else. And then some amazing, really cool stuff happened. Um, But all of that started with the what I presume to be a dimethyltryptamine flush through my brain that then connected my consciousness in a non-standard way. And I understand that stuff a lot better now. So we can dig into the science and get a little bit, um, you know, like, so it's not so woo woo for the folks who are like, Oh, come on, man. You know, what are you talking about? You know, you're accessing non-local consciousness, yada, yada, yada. It's like, well, a lot of the physical science actually proves it. That that's kind of how it works. Um, so, but the long story short of it was, this whole process led to me explaining how our human emotions work, how our human mind works, and then figuring out that when a regular individual comes at it from just reading what I can put out stuff, that actually changes their mind to work differently as well and can change their life based on a bunch of cool neuroscience that's created, that's connected with our brain wiring and how it actually works naturally which I didn't even understand. I didn't even know. And I'm, you know, so now I'm in that space of, hmm, w- was that part of the whole hmm. delivery package of I was supposed to create uh. that message and, and then benefit humanity in that way. And that it's just, it's supposed to be that way, but I hadn't intended it to be that way. And I didn't know it was going to be that way, but it turns out to be that way because the stuff that you think about and that you learn about when you figure out how your mind works. It throws you into this special place of meta awareness, which then does a whole bunch of cool stuff, uh, according to studies, uh, of the human brain and allows you some space in between you and your bullshit and then creates a space of understanding, which then hits a magic button that turns down your negative reactivity in your brain. They've seen it on an FMRI. So it's like a whole ton of cool stuff going on with this. So wherever you want to go with that, I'm open to go. I don't care. Let's get it out there and get everybody on board with this because it's an amazing tool. Like you can leave it alone. You can totally poo poo, you know, everything that I've set up to this point and ignore it and go on and live your life. And I hope you have a happy life or you could dig into it and do some amazing stuff because these uh, there was this lady who's cured her own addiction. Supposedly, that's her story of uh, being able to get in and hack her mind and control her mind and solve decades of, of substance abuse the Navy SEALs are coming to me saying this is the best mind training that exists on the planet or one of the best mind trainings that exists on the planet. And they've already been through the best mind training. We're doing a podcast together. Now these guys are so dedicated. That's, you know, some cool endorsement. I'm just like, yeah, let's go. Let's make humanity 3.0, right? Yeah. Let's get the let's get the world beyond our BS and, and get to a different place. And you've,
0: you've leaned leaned into it enough <laughs> that you're just um, allowing the space for it to grow and develop new new connections with new people. That sort of synthesis, you know, the idea that 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 the creation of that of that framework somehow some has may have some encoded wisdom that, that changes people's brains. Um, yeah. Uh, I want to go back to a little bit this, I'm so glad that we, that we're going this here because people of familiar, you know, listeners of, of this podcast know that this is my favorite stuff. And I, (laughs) I I spend a lot of time thinking about this in sensory deprivation tanks and in meditation and, um, in in ceremony, um, the one thing that, that I'm hearing you say is that that your process of bringing this information forward sort of merges or marries the 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 material the the chemical explanation between like the experiential um, um, way that we see ourselves and the way that we see our consciousness. Yeah, and, and what's troubled me. for for a long time is, is that when you have that sort of experience, when you, when you have what I call the download, um, some, some prolific insight unto yourself, some awareness of your family tree, some, some past life regression experience, or just some greater awareness of your purpose that comes spontaneously. And, you know, like, um, I'm, um, I had a really diligent astral projection practice, um, for, for about a year, about a year where I was projecting with recall nightly, um, with lucidity within the projected experience. Yeah. You just, you, you can't measure that stuff, but you should try.
1: <laughs> no, you can't, you can't measure that stuff, but you know, you like you said, I'm, and here's the thing. I think we're gonna, we're finally with the communication technologies. We're coming to a point where, like, materialist reductionist science has always poo-pooed anything that was um, experiential because the n equals one. If you're a scientist, right, you can't you know get a group together and have a placebo controlled double blind study of an enlightenment experience, especially since enlightenment is like such a rare, rare thing to occur, especially in a natural environment without the exogenous psychedelic compounds and stuff like that, which I studied some into as well afterwards and, uh, and started to experience just recently. And, um, there's a, there's an experiential gap there, but the cool thing is when you bring an experiential group together and you start to increase and compare experiences over a larger group of folks you can start to identify patterns and you can start to identify the things that are common and uh, you know back in uh, william james's time he started to identify you know the multiple characteristics of a unitive experience and um he started to started to identify those and and now psychology is starting to identify you know with the use of study of psych- psychedelics and things like that the things that have are very common among groups of people even in an individual instance of experience they just start ticking off the boxes oh yeah unit of experiences oh yeah ineffable oh yeah and you know uh all these different things and uh and you know there may be you know details that are unique to an individual, but when you start to dig down into the mind and you start to dig down into consciousness, I mean, that's what we are, right? And, and I had this this small argument um with Alex at Skeptico recently, where he's very much... Um, I was on his, on his, on his show and he's very much a, and kind of an anti-science guy. I mean, he comes at it from a, you know, I love science thing, but when you get down into it, a lot of his arguments are like, you know, he doesn't like the scientific approach because it poo-poo's anything to do with, um, experiential. And so when I start to talk about the brain being a portion of that existence of that experiential, um, phenomena, he likes to push away from that because he's like, oh, it's spiritual, it's beyond the brain, it's you know, it's non-local, it's yada yada yada. And I'm like, it's both. It's yeah. not one or the other. It's like you may be tapping into non-local. You may be tapping into a data structure within the quantum field or things that don't exist right here on Earth in front of your eyes and things like that, which science now is starting to support. I mean, with the Sukuba Japan thing uh, proving that our neurons interact with the quantum field vibrations. And now, so now, you know, are uh, 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 basically the scientific reality of a, our consciousness being non-local is almost a mathematical certainty right. at this point, right? You Or at least a portion of it. Well, even if you're tapping into that stuff that's beyond you, it still has to come through your brain. And so then you still have to figure out, okay, how is my brain coloring that? How yeah. is my brain organizing that? How is my brain maybe sh- shaping that or... Changing it a little bit for me to be able to understand things, you know, you have to understand both sides of the equation You have to understand. Yeah, I am a person with a physiology That with a brain that works a certain way and they all kind of work the same way Um, You know when we stop breathing it stops working, but our consciousness could go out further Beyond our body into a non local space and you need to understand both right you need to understand that you know, there is more than what you're experiencing here in front of your face in in all likelihood and mathematically, uh, it's almost a certainty, but at the same time, you also have to realize, okay, there is some stuff up here that creates that to be our existence here in front of us and, and our consciousness here within our heads and will be a filter or, or at least a channel to what the other things that we're, we're connected to. And so you got to understand both. You got to understand what you're accessing and what could be out there and all the potential that could exist there. But then also how this is working to create or maybe even fool you sometimes, um, or, or, create some things that you think are out there that are actually very deep within your own, uh, conscious, you know, hierarchy, because, you know, we have more than one person in our head, by the way, for you guys listening and you can prove that that if you've ever made yourself laugh, okay, well, who's the funny one and who's the one that's laughing? Like if you knew everything that was going on inside your head, if you had one consciousness, you'd never be able to make yourself laugh with a joke that you thought up that you could then share with other people and make them <laughs> laugh because you'd already know the joke and you wouldn't be laughing. You wouldn't surprise yourself with the joke. There uh, ha, ha. wouldn't be that whole moment without more than one person inside your head. And the reality is you have multiple levels of consciousness that are always kind of, you know, and somebody's thinking about this and, oh, where are my keys? And then all of a sudden you see an image of where your keys were because somebody remembers but can't – you give you the words, hey, go to the kitchen. But boom, there they are on the kitchen counter and your image in your mind. Oh, yeah, that's where they were. You go there. That's where they are. Yeah. Right? There are multiple levels of consciousness in your mind. When you start to dig into that, that gives you a better understanding of – how much more within your mind you can unlock to make your life better here on earth and then also how much more effective you can be in that space of exploration beyond your regular waking consciousness to really take charge and have agency within those extra conscious spaces
0: it's just yeah. crazy yeah I, I, and and i i'm i'm in a I mean, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to elaborate a little bit on on the you know the the multiple versions of self and some of the frameworks that you use because I um, it's fascinating. Not only is it fascinating and interesting for people who are interested in performing at a high level, um, but it is fun. It is the fundamental um, investigation of our lives to understand ourselves a little bit better. Um, you know, you to to know yourself is. Increasingly important, and the people that do are living fuller, more productive, happier lives. And I'm going to ask you about the word "happy" in a second, but I want to yeah. go back to the connection that you made um, with Einstein and how you chew on a question, you think about it, you consider it, and then it just sort of comes, it sort of wells up from within you somewhere, you know. And I think about you know the the, the father of the scientific method and how Descartes came up with the the scientific method, through a visitation of an angel that told him that um, that the 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 whole of the universe can be distilled um, down into into mathematics. Like this angel came to him in a, in a dream yeah. and said, "Hey, listen, just reduce things down, and we'll learn everything about the universe." And then he came up with the scientific method. Um, uh, th- that that synthesis between the work that we do the things we're focused on and the sort of quantum field or jung's you know collective uh, unconscious the, the 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 concept that there is information sort of around us all the time right and how can we calibrate our brains just enough so that we're not distracted by that breakup or tacos or a stubbed toe that we can actually manage ourselves manage our brains manage our emotions so that we can be receptive as conduits to this, this, this greater information, um, you know, then I think the conversation becomes, well, to what end? Why, why do you, why do you want access? Um, is it because you want to be Darth Vader or is it because Mm -hmm. you want to cure cancer? Like what's the thing, what's your thing? And that's up to you, right?
1: Yeah. 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 And you've hit on a number of points that I would love to, to dig a little deeper on. And the first one being, and you have to remind me the motivation of digging deep, the motivation of reaching out yeah. would be the second one. But the first one goes to look, man, the more the more you can understand the top level waking awareness of. W- you know how your physiology works because a lot of what we do in our regular day waking awareness is governed by our physiology. It's governed by our brain and what it's there to do. Like our brain is our organ of survival. And so a lot of our thoughts and feelings and emotions and reactions and things like that are all connected with that physiological influence that we have that kind of jerks our attention away from other stuff all day, every day. And like, for instance, uh, you know your limbic system is the thing that is always scanning your environment for threats, right? And a threat to what? Okay, so the second part of that is your sense of self, your definition of you. Because if you look over at a leafcutter ant, you have to understand whether or not you have leaves to be able to discern whether that thing's a threat to whether you should expend energy. Because we are a finite energy creature. If we waste too much energy defending over everything, then we're going to run out of energy and just die, and that doesn't isn't conducive to survival. And so your organs, this this organ of survival, your brain's this organ of survival, and it is designed to help you f- to to survive from one day into the next. And so all of the things that you are thinking from a day to day basis are basically connected with helping me survive from one day into the next, of defending the things that are me or that I ident- that I identify as me, which is the false self, which everybody understands is the lowercase s. I put it in brackets because it's actually a set of things. And if once you you start to understand that, you can start to take control of it. Explain that in the Red Book. But then um you know if you get by that then you can start to understand the capital s self you can start to experience the capital S self only when you can shut down the processing that's trying to get in your way of the lower s self right and so when you get to that point of being able to see that whole process as what it is and understand the thoughts that are arising within you aren't you there's two two, two amazing things that can happen that i alluded to previously one it puts a distance between you and the small S self. It puts a distance between you and the physiological reactions of your body, which are, I need to survive into one from one day into the next, you know, is that a coil on the hose? Is that that a, is that a hose or is that a snake? Boom. You know, you jump, your limbic system is, is firing. You look down, you notice that it's just a hose. You gain control of your, of your physiology again. The fear goes away immediately. Well, the, the more that you can see that process happening in your brain as it occurs, the more distance that occurs between you and that thing. Because just as a fingertip can't touch itself, um, an olfactory nerve can't smell itself, an eyeball can't see itself without some distance in a mirror, a, t- a taste bud can't touch itself or can't taste itself, you cannot perceive a thought – From that same mind area. When you're when a mind is is in action, if you can look at it, that proves that you are not that mind, because there always must be a distance between a perceiver and a perceived. And so that right there teaches your subconscious mind, the one that's in charge of identifying your sense of self, because by the way, this sense of self map, this thing, I've got a little uh, here it is. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. I was
0: waiting for that thing. Let's see it. <laughs> yeah.
1: You got a sense of self. Or you got you got a map, right? And and they've proven in um, uh, brain studies and, and psychology studies that this thing actually exists in your brain. Um, there's a, a area of it. They've identified the areas that map yourself. Well, this is your laundry list of stuff. And at the point that you have a a definition of self that says I can jump over a six foot crevice, I can't jump over an eight foot crevice. Those are very important definitions to have. I can not beat off a bear, but I can run just fast enough to climb a tree like those things that you learn about yourself are very important because if they're wrong, that can kill you. I mean, if you have the wrong definition of self, you have the wrong idea of who and what you are, like if you think you don't have leaves and you do have leaves and all of a sudden those leaf cutter ants come over and kill you, that's a bad thing, right? You have to have a definition of self that's accurate or you will not survive into tomorrow. And so when you have that experience of being able to see your mind at play and your emotions coming into being, that gives you that distance for your subconscious awareness that's supposed to keep this thing accurate to say, wait a second. I thought I was that mess yesterday. I thought I was this anger. I thought I was this frustration. I thought I was this sadness. I thought I was this fear. But now I can see it, which means I'm, I'm now my mind and the awareness that can see my mind. So it has to rewrite self. And right, that right there, that one thing right there—you just taking a look at the process of your mind—rewrites your mind self, and then changes your whole emotional landscape for the rest of your life. Because now your self is a little bit bigger, and your your sense of self goes from a little mud puddle where a, you know a, a life problem rock that goes in and splashes water out and makes you feel smaller and rocks your boats, or maybe even sinks one or two. Now that now that little mud puddle of self gets out to be a pond. And the more you do it, that pond shrinks or you know, expands into a lake or expands into an ocean, expands into an infinitude of self that now a life problem rock goes in. You don't even see the ripples. It doesn't rock in your boats at all because your sense of self is way expanded beyond what it was previously. <clears throat> and so at the point that you can understand your physiology and how your physiology is creating the emotions that you have to deal with every day. Once you get beyond that, I mean, that blows people's minds. Right. That like literally <laughs> uh, it is it is a thing that once you get beyond, you're like, holy cow, I thought this whole experience of what I'm doing today was huge. And then you see how infinitesimally small it was in comparison yeah. to what you actually are and what you can actually experience and what you can actually perceive, et cetera, and, and the capacity of your mind. Because after you shut down that whole, you know, defensive self-mechanism bullshit. Your brain starts to do different things and you open up uh, to a whole different level of intelligence, a whole different level of consciousness that you didn't even realize that you had access to. And then you start to tap into, you know, the universal um, intelligence, the universal knowledge on a more regular basis. And then you're like, holy crap, this is a whole new ballgame. This is like, you know, you move from, you move from, um, you know, uh, Sean version – two to Sean version 3.0 and the 3.0 is amazing compared to 2.0. And you're just like, wow, this is really cool. And then your life becomes effortless. Your life becomes amazing. And then you can really start to explore Sean 3.0 to say, wow, what's this? And is there a 4.0 coming, (laughs) you know? And, uh, and that, that process is amazing. But step one comes back to understanding yourself, understanding the physiology of yourself And putting those processes aside, right? Now, what was the second point that I asked you to bring me back to?
0: That once you have the ability to understand that you are more capable, uh, what will you do with it?
1: Right, because – Darth um, Vader
0: or cure cancer.
1: Yes, what is your motivation, right? Right. What is your motivation of of seeking more? Because here's the thing, and this can be a big sticking point. So everybody should listen to this if you're a seeker, right? This thing is your sense of self, and this thing. So, just
0: just for the listeners, um, and, and this is this is one of the tools that that, uh, that you you'll see on Sean's YouTube channel um, that he uses and has come up in other conversations. But it's it's concentric circles around um, with four with four quadrants, four areas um, that that. So, when he says this, that I just want to make sure that. Yeah.
1: yeah, and let's just, let's just discuss this thing for a second, and I, and I won't lose my point, but this sense of self thing is very important, and it's an actual thing that uh, occurs in the brain in science, and they've identified it. Like um, Jim Cohn at the University of Virginia, like like the brain is your organ of survival, and it's identifying threats, and a threat to what? Um, yourself, okay, the, the definition of you. But Jim Cohn at the University of Virginia proved to us that it's more than just your body. Like people used to think – psychologists used to think just a couple of decades ago that yourself was just your body and that when a baseball flew at your head, you dodged involuntarily involuntarily because you were protecting self and that was part of your brain circuitry, et cetera. And you, um, you ducked out of the way because you were trying to protect self and that was because your body is on your self map. But then Jim Cohn came along and he did this cool little study with an fMRI and he put a, a group of people in an fMRI machine and he said, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna give you a flash of light in your goggles and then we're gonna pause to watch your brain and then we're gonna zap your ankle. <laughs> and so he kind of freaked these people out a little bit and what he was expecting to see was a little bit of a fear response because he goes, I'm, I'm threatening your body, your bodily, you know, I'm gonna give you some pain. And uh So he gave them the flash of light, watched their brain. The fear centers lit up in their brain and then he zapped their ankle and I I thought that was so cool. But then when he did as a second group or as a second run, he took the ankle zapper off of them and he put it on a stranger. He brought a stranger into the room and he said, okay, we're going to give you the flash of light, Mr. Subject. So we're still going to be watching your brain. We're going to give you the flash of light, but then we're going to zap somebody else that you don't know. And so what they got was what they expected, which was flash of light, watch the brain, no fear at all. Zap the stranger, let's have fun, give me some popcorn, whatever it is, Um, so we can can watch it, sell the cable rights. Um, (laughs) They did not care, right? They didn't care that somebody else was going to be zapped because they weren't a portion of your sense of self. Now, the third thing that they did, which is the thing that became world famous— is that they brought somebody in who was a familiar, is what the psychology calls it. Somebody they loved, basically. So, uh, you know, a significant other, uh, a family member, a good friend, you know, a neighbor, whatever it was, somebody that knew the subject. They brought back into the room and they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you the flash of light. We're going to pause to watch your brain. And then we're going to zap the person that you love. And the, the cool thing that happened that they weren't expecting was that they could not tell the brain scans apart from the first time they were going to zap the body and the third time when they were gonna zap the loved one, which proved that the people that we love Get mapped onto our sense of self. It becomes a portion of who we are. It becomes a definition of our existence, a portion of our life. The things that we care about become a sense of self. And so that's what explains how we get emotions for other people that we care about when something bad happens to them or when something good happens to them is actually our own brain circuitry saying, hey, that's good for us or that's it, bad it, for us.
0: Is it also empathy or is empathy just underneath that umbrella?
1: Empathy is under, underneath that umbrella. Um, where you identify with somebody as an, a fellow human being, or um, et cetera. We could go into mirror neurons and empathy circuits in a little bit. And I can explain the difference between sympathy, empathy, and compassion, which is one of the things that I helped define, by the way. But the um, the cool thing is that this goes out even further. Tiffany Burnett White proved at UIUC that brands can become can become attached to our sense of self. So Apple, Android, Ford, Chevy. You know, Yankees, Boston Red Sox. You know that this is, explains why people get upset or excited about sports contests or about you know all the things they do, and then other ideas like uh, um, Sam Harris proved that. Politics and religion both get mapped onto our sense of self and then become things that we want to defend And which is why we have positive and negative emotions connected with the things that we become attached to the ideas And then we you know our, our life story gets piled onto this thing The projects at work our expectations and preferences about those types of things get piled onto this thing Which is why we have emotional reactions about all this stuff Well, when you could see that whole process down to the expectation or preference that you not get cut off in traffic and then you get cut off in traffic, you can start to take control of those emotional reactions and get beyond them. And then you're starting to get beyond, um, you know, and I call it, you know, like humanity 1.0 was when we really didn't have control over our (laughs) food logistics and distribution and stuff like that. And now we're into spreadsheets and things like that. So we're now into humanity 2.0. You want to go from humanity 2.0 and humanity 3.0, you rewrite your operating system in your brain. By doing this, by getting this stuff taken care of um, and off of the process list of the stuff that you have to take into consideration Mm -hmm. in your daily existence. And then you start to go beyond your simple physiological hardwiring to get into that space of an expanded awareness of what's going on beyond what your brain is telling you about your defensive self stuff. So getting back to your motivation, this thing right here, your sense of self drives 50% 50% of every emotional reaction you will have in your life. Every little voice that arises inside your head that says you're not good enough, you're not worthy enough, you're not ready enough, you're not, uh, you know, whatever it is, comes from this sense of self. All of your emotional reactions in your life of disappointment, of frustration, of sadness, of fear, of whatever comes from this sense of self. Because you know, this side is one half of your equation of emotion, the sense of self thing, and the other thing is your perception of how you see things. And that's broken down in the Red Book. But once you get beyond this, then you're into that space of being able to expand your awareness. Now, here's here's the trick. Here's the, the catch that I wanted to bring up that brings us back to your motivation of wanting to expand into um, spirituality and uh, non-local consciousness and things like that. If you want to put spirituality and extra abilities and higher intelligence and non-local consciousness. And your, your understanding of shit on your self map, you are killing your own, uh, success. You are stunting your own growth because you've got to get beyond this. You've got to get beyond your sense of self. You've got to get beyond your, who am I and what I can do. And, and this whole thing connected with, um, spirituality, you can't put spirituality on as a coat. You can't walk around saying, oh, I'm on my path to enlightenment or I'm, I'm enlightened or whatever. You cannot make that an attachment of your sense of self because that thing anchors you into your version of you 2.0. It does not allow you to develop into your version of you 3.0. And that's, that's the thing that I wanted to, to bring up to people. Cause a lot of people get stuck with this. A lot of people will get a little bit of an awakening or a little bit of a consciousness expansion, or a little bit of a higher level of understanding, or whatever it is, and then they'll put it right here on their self-map and say, oh, I've got that now. Mm. I'm this thing. I'm, I'm, you know, woke. I, I'm woke now, yeah. so. I'm woke, yeah. And so then that drags them right back into this bullshit, and they've totally erased any um, benefits that they could have gleaned from mm. any level of awakening or any level of expansion that they've made because they come right back into attachment to it, mm. uh, an attachment to their, their sense of stuff. Wow. I know they can keep... Holding this up in front of the camera. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's good.
0: Yeah, that's 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 profound, and I think that I think that we need to be reminded of that because we we do identify. I mean, we yeah, excellent point. Um, well, what's what are a trick or two, a tool, a um. Um, an area of self-talk, NLP. Like, what? Please share with us. Give us just one or two of your most effective. Well, by the book, damn it. But uh, <laughs> uh, um, give us give us one or two ways that we can um, very quickly begin to detach the small s self in brackets from the capital S self.
1: Yeah. I will give you the best tool that people, that everyone loves who, and most people have written to me about this, that have changed their lives with this little tool. Um, there's one rule that you need to do when you're in the moments of emotional turmoil in your life, uh, and even, you know, big or small. And that is to, anytime you use the word me, put the word the in front of it. So for instance, um, that makes me angry becomes that makes the me angry or her turning me down for a date made me sad her turning the me down for a date made the me sad and it's a little trick of you know language really but it shifts your awareness right to remind you that the whole process of your emotional responses is one that is not your awareness it's one that's not you it's one front that is created by your sen- your sense of self small s and it's always measuring whether something your perception is good or bad in comparison to something that's attached to you. So, for instance, if somebody turns you down for a date, then all of the value of your entire self map gets devalued a little bit because somebody doesn't love you as much as you love them or as much as you want to be with them. They don't want to be with you, whatever it is. There's a devaluation there. And that's a very physiological reaction that, cr- that causes a sad feeling in your brain. And you're like, oh, that's me. Well, no, 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 that's not you. That's the physiological reaction that you need to get over to realize your capital S self, your larger existence beyond just the what's going on in your mind thing. And your mind is the me. You're the big capital letter I. And a lot of people use I and me uh, interchangeably. And so if you want to put the word the in front of the word I, you can also do that as well or just change the word I to the word me to remind yourself like I feel sad. You say the me feels sad. That gives you that space. It gives you that black curtain between you and the reaction itself, which distances you from it just a little bit, gets you a little bit more control of it, gets you a realization that you're not that reaction, that you can use that reaction if it's useful. Like, you know, anger could be a useful emotion sometimes. You come up and slap my kid in the face. I'm going to use anger to put you on the ground. You know, I'm going to take that adrenaline dump. And I'm going to use it to strengthen my muscles to make you understand that's inappropriate. We're not going to have that activity anymore, right? There are some things that are are emotions that aren't bad in your life, right? There are some things that are very useful, but it moves you from a compulsion into a choice. It moves you from being controlled by something, being controlled by your mind, into a choice of being able to use a reaction of your mind Uh. to your greatest benefit, which raises your level of consciousness. It raises your level of consciousness to say, I'm not controlled by this thing, but I can still use its output And I can still select if it's appropriate to use that as a tool, which is what it is. It's the most powerful tool you have on the planet. Your brain is, your mind is, to be able to make a great life for yourself. But now it gives you a higher level of – it dumps you into a meta-awareness to say, I have a higher level of consciousness, literally a higher level of consciousness. It's a scientific thing now, meta-awareness. I have a higher level of consciousness above my regular waking awareness that I can now be an executive even higher. I've just given myself a promotion inside my own mind. Like I've moved up to the corner office from where I thought I was the driver of everything, but I just found out I was the middle manager. Well, now I'm running the show because now I see the reactions of my mind is not not orders that I have to take, not things that I have to be compelled to do. I now have a choice to either be Uh, you know, use that as a compulsion or set those things aside. Hmm. And like a a great story that I have that, um, served me really well, I'd been practicing this for a long time. So this is a non-standard situation. Okay. So don't expect that, um, you'll be able to do this out of the gate. But, um, after I'd been practicing being able to see my emotions and being able to separate, um, and, and go from compulsion into a choice of whether to use those or not, I had knocked on my mom's door at, um, her assisted living facility. And for the first time in my life, she opened the door and she'd gone, she'd always been a little bit absent minded, but she opened the door and she goes, hi, can I help you? And she looked at me without any recognition at all. And so in that moment and understand my mind is, is thanks to when you set your emotional processing aside, your brain starts to process at a super high rate and, you start to be able to think a lot more efficiently, et cetera. In those few seconds, I realized my mom didn't know who I was, but what all that meant. It meant that the only son that she had ever wanted, that she had waited 12 years beyond all the rest of her kids to accidentally have as a surprise that she was finally blessed with a son was now no longer. She doesn't have a son that she'd wanted in her whole life. She was never going to understand the love of a son, plus all the stuff that would mean to me. I really didn't have a mom who would recognize me anymore. I couldn't have a hug from my mom who would recognize me. I couldn't share a laugh with my mom. The memories of my existence were probably mostly gone at this point. Um, You know, so it's like a whole gambit of a number of things connected with my mom had just disappeared immediately upon her not recognizing me i mean in, and i went into the room and tried to give her a few minutes to say you know maybe you know smooth it over oh yeah oh my goodness it's my son there no i never didn't didn't recognize me the whole time we were there i even pointed out a picture of my son i was like oh who, who are these people oh those are my people aren't they cute and so didn't really understand who these folks were she kind of knew that you know because the pictures were around her that they were kind of connected with her family or something like that but she said my people didn't say my family or my grandson or anything cause she couldn't put it together. Um, there was a moment there, like a lot of people would, would go into their own emotional fallout immediately. Yeah. Like, Oh my God, I just lost my mom. My mom doesn't know who I am, you know? And then that goes into a whole science of, you know, who is your mom on yourself map? Um, cause my mom was very dear to me. Um, who, does, who am I to my mom on my self-map? So it gets really meta. So there's a lot of stuff that comes into this. It, I mean, we could have hours long of a conversation of how complex this is. All of that flew through my mind in a number of seconds. And I saw the emotion of sadness arising within me. And so I said, is this going to be a useful emotion? And I said, no. It's not going to be a useful emotion in the second if I'm wallowing in my own self-pity of, you know, all the things that I had just lost with my mom, not recognizing who I am, et cetera. So what's going to serve her at this moment? Because I'm here for her, right? I'm here to help her. I'm here to make sure that the, she's still loving her meals and all this other stuff. They're still getting all the stuff done that she asked them to get done and uh, yada, yada, yada. Uh, although it was a nice place she was staying at. But, you know, your mom gets get picky and you're like, go, go fix my mom's problems. Um, so... I set that aside and I went through and I processed it all and I literally processed all of the sadness and all the disappointment and all the things that could come of that in probably 1 to 2 seconds or maybe about a second and then was beyond it. It's not like I had to go out to the car and cry or go home and pout for days. It was as it was, hmm. it simply existed as it was. The, you know, I didn't I I could have felt the emotions if I wanted to, if I thought they were going to be useful. But what did I need to do in that moment? I needed to be that nice guy just stopping by to check on this lady, you know, just see how she's doing and just be a friendly face and have a a nice, you know, half hour, hour long conversation of, you know, Hey, is everything okay here for you? How you doing? You know, you know, they changed the the thing that you wanted in the meals and all this other stuff. And, um, I was that person who was there for her, Hmm. which was my original goal. Yeah, and so I really didn't need to go through that whole emotional processing thing for me because I understood it, and that's how our physiology works. By the way, when you walk by that that coil on the ground and you're and you're trying to figure out whether it's a snake or a hose, and your limbic system makes you jump a little bit because you think it's a snake, and then you look down and you realize it's a hose, your understanding process, and this will this is a comes out of a study of uh, uh, patients in UCLA in 2007 of a name attainment study. Matt Lieberman put a group of folks through an fMRI and he said, we're just going to show you some pictures of some emotions and we're going to watch your brain. And that's where the mirror neurons and the empathy circuit started kicking in. And the subconscious awareness of the brain started to mirror what was going on in the pictures that they were looking at. And they saw it in the fMRI. And then the second group they put through and they said, OK, we just want you to name it. We just want you to name the emotion in play. And in that second group of the people who named the emotion in play, the negative reactivity in the brain turned off. Like in the instant that they named the emotion, anger, fear, sadness, whatever it was. So it was an emotional processing that was sent to the forebrain and said, hey, what's going on here? And then the forebrain said, okay, this is anger, this is fear, this is whatever. And in that next moment, the emotion center turned off in the brain. They saw it live happening in front of them on the screen. And then a whole copycat set of studies came out that confirmed the phenomena. They called it the, the name attainment studies, Dan, uh, uh, Dan Siegel. Travels the world talking about uh, the name it tame it phenomena. He and I had breakfast one morning uh, a few years back Um, It's a thing It's a thing that it's a push button that where you put a cognitive understanding to your emotional process and you understand what's going on With it, it turns it off and basically it comes from that same phenomenon walking by the hose Where your your limbic system says oh my god, there's a snake and then you look down you say no, no, no Thank you. Mr. Emotional brain. We got the message. We look down. It's just a hose. We're good we can go on without, you know, without any more fear reaction, turn off the fear and the fear system turns off immediately. Oh, that's just a hose. Well, that's a, that's a function of our brains wiring within our brain that is designed to not waste energy. And so when the forebrain sends the message back to the emotional brain says, Hey, turn it off, turn it off. And the emotional brain says, okay, it's resolved. It doesn't come up again. You don't go, Oh my God, there's a snake when there's no hose there on the ground an hour later, it's resolved. It's done. You have completed that process. You've completed the communication loop in your in your nervous system to be able to turn off your negativity and your your emotional reactivity. And this is what um, you know therapy is all about: is understanding your pain from your childhood and yada yada, yada that it keeps sending forward because it hasn't ever been resolved. And once you get it resolved, it stops. And then you're you're clear. You're you're cured. Whatever. You don't need therapy anymore, right? That's that whole same process. Well, the same thing is true, and you can actually turn that up. By understanding your emotional process, and so that's what happened in that doorway when i when my mom opened the door and she said, "You know, who are you?" I understood what was going on there. i under I could pinpoint. I could draw it. you know, I could take two hours in that one second to draw you what's going on on a whiteboard of what's going on in my mind and understanding where the emotional turmoil would be coming from, the things that are on my self map and the things that are coming in to make the devaluation of. You know, what I've lost and why I would feel sad and yada, yada, yada. Well, that same circuit, that same understanding of the name it, tame it circuit on steroids now, because my understanding isn't more than just saying, oh, sadness, and then it turns off. Well, that doesn't work in every instance. But when you get down into the granular understanding of your emotional processing and you understand exactly what it is that's coming together to create your sadness in that area and all the the facets of uh, all the, the permutations of sadness that could be arising at that moment and you understand every bit of it. That button immediately turns it off for you and it's like a sneeze. You can't even stop it from happening hmm. now You do have a choice you do you could go through and feel it you could go in through and feel the anger You could allow the sadness to come within you and you want to feel it and you want to process it You want to be a human you want to let your physiology go and do that whole thing you can do it totally But you can also just say you know what this is gonna serve me in this moment and it never came back the sadness never came back for me because it was resolved because the button was pushed up here to say right ventral lateral prefrontal cortex, medial prefrontal cortex, shut it off. We're done. We're good. It's resolved. And the the emotion center of the brain said, okay, we're good. Cool. Thanks. Just want to let you know you just lost your mom. Okay. Got it. Appreciate it. Going to handle it. No issues. Wow. And, and just went forward from there. And that's what can occur after you do this for... You know, uh, you know, uh, 10,000 hours or whatever the mastery level is. I mean, it's there's a there's a big question of whether that's the real number of hours or, you know, whether, you know, like you handle LeBron James in basketball. He's going to dunk it a lot quicker than 10,000 hours because he's got a, a physiological advantage over some people. So maybe some people can do it better than others. Maybe I can do better than others or maybe others could take a shorter time than I did to do it. But there's a way that you can do it if you understand the workings of your human mind, and that's what we're talking about when we're talking about mind hacking your happiness. Yeah, right. Mind hacking your ability to expand your consciousness and get beyond your your regular waking awareness.
0: What a profound story! What a what a poignant explanation of how how it works and 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 where it applies. You know, I I can't help but wonder um, where people try to poke holes. You know, uh, are there people from um, therapeutic organizations that say, no, no, you need to honor your feelings. Even if it's disruptive, um, you need to, you need to go into that emotion. You need to feel that, that misery because there's a, there's a, there's a power and a usefulness and in transformation in, in feeling the depth of your despair. Yeah. You know, what, how do people try to pick it apart and what do you say?
1: the the motivation for them to pick it apart comes from their egoic attachment to their science. Uh-huh, okay. <laughs> all right? All right? Which comes in and says they have to feel their way through this emotion. They have to they have to let it come through and be whatever. And there's some good science to that. I mean, and some people may find that because the way the nervous system works is that it likes to be heard, right? Whenever a message is sent from one portion of the nervous system to the other, Um, It wants to be heard and and get the message back that it's understood, which is why this actually works is because you're not Uh, repressing the emotion. You're not pushing it away. You're not denying it. You're not, um, you know, uh, saying I'm not going to think about this right now because that's changing your perception, which is one half of your equation of emotion. And if you do shift your perception and not think about something, you will leave that message unresolved, right? And it will want to come back for you later. And so there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of truth in the psychologist who would say, oh, you know, you need to feel your emotion, you need to work through it, you need to, and for some people that's going to be true. Okay. But the reality is, is when you can understand your emotion and, and, and cause it'll come right back to them. I mean, if the people want to step up and poo poo this approach and say, Oh no, you have to go through and feel this and follow my process that I learned as a psychologist, you know, yada, 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 because they're attached to their, the way that they do things and they want to defend the way that they do things. And ultimately what that is, is their sense of self saying, wait a second, no, 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 I am important. Uh, Because I'm the portion that creates that whole emotional processing thing. And um, no, there's nothing more important than me, right? That's the portion of their existence within themselves. that's coming up and saying, I can't be demoted. I can't be turned off immediately. I have to be listened to, you know, that type of thing. That's what those psychologists are saying in that moment. Well, there's some truth to that with some folks who can't master this. um, But at the same time, the science is always going to come back and bite them in the ass. Because when you start digging deeper into that, What it comes down to is the physiology supports my side of the argument that says once you understand and put a resolution and tell the emotion that it's been heard, first of all, it's going to want to quit sending. But second, when you say, okay, we understand it, we get it, that hits the name attainment circuits that turns off the emotion that resolves the emotion. What do they do in therapy for years and 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 get all their paychecks from is helping the person understand their pain to the point that the, the pain finally feels heard, and then that button get clicked years later after they spent thousands ah, of dollars in therapy yeah. to say, okay, I've been heard. My pain of my childhood, of my you know, uh, abuse or my neglect or you know the, the person that dumped me when I got turned 40 and uh, hired you know married a secretary or whatever, years after that, the button finally gets pressed to say, okay, I've been heard. Okay, got I've it. talked about it enough. OK, I've I've understood it enough. I under I get down into the workings of my mind and I understand exactly why all of the things that have been said have been said. And, whew, you know, the big deep breath, the ex, big exhale happens and all of a sudden they don't need therapy on that particular issue anymore. Why? Mm. Why? Because they understood it because they communicated to the portion of their brain. has been trying to send the message for years that it's finally been heard exactly the same stuff that you could do within a split second if you master it. Wow. You don't need years of therapy to be able to get beyond complex and, and hurtful emotions that inhibit your life, by the way. That is an excellent,
0: as an excellent answer. I mean, that is, that is, that is really, that is really excellent. Um,
1: now, understand, you can't do this like right out of the gate. Like you'll move from, you know, like your are incompetent, uh, your your unconscious incompetence, like our adult learning model, right? Your unconscious incompetence where you don't even know what you need to know, right? You pick up the book and then you start reading about it. And then you move into your conscious incompetence where, well, at least you know what you you need to know to be able to master it. Uh, but you still can't do it. But then, by the end of the, the red book, you start to move into a conscious competence and say, "Okay, I get these. I can put the in front of the me. Okay, I can look at my expectation or preference about the things on my self map, or I can look at my perception and start changing those things and have my whole emotional life change based on how I see things or how I look at things." And then after a while that's when the plasticity kicks in because just like you try to play the piano you get better after a while just like you do crossword puzzles you get better at it after a while just like you shoot a basketball you try to hit a baseball you try to do whatever it is and your subconscious mind changes to get better like they've proven this in studies where you know the the knowledge like is the london cab driver test That you've got to know 100,000 points of interest in London with uh, like uh, 2,500 streets and uh, uh, all of these different ways that the streets go one way during the morning and the other way during the night. And the traffic snarls that exist and the best way to get across town, you have to memorize all that stuff. And it's like takes four years and seven tries on this test on the average to pass this test to be a London cab driver. They studied those folks. Their hippocampus, their memory center of their brain gets bigger. And the white matter around their hippocampus where they have to memorize all this stuff gets a lot more complex and a lot more connections. Your brain changes in form and function over time based on how you use it. And the more you use it to increase your happiness, the more you use it to understand your emotional processing, the more you use it to be able to quell the things that get in your way of having a higher consciousness, the better you get at it. It helps you do that. from from an unconscious competence perspective, and that's where it's lights out. That's where you're in that LeBron James space, that Tiger Woods space, that Michael Jordan space of simply turning it on and letting it go, and it just performs Hmm. at an optimal level that is just beyond everything else that you've ever imagined. It'll do it for you, yeah, yeah. It's cool stuff. Oh
0: God, it's so cool. It's, it's, this is an instant classic, Sean. Uh, this, oh, is, thanks, this is phenomenal. I, you know, I want to, I want to, there's two, there's two other things that I, that I for sure want to get your take on. Um, I'm not sure how you're doing for time, but, um, the one, the one thing that I, cause I, oh, man, we needed another six hours for this. Con- <laughs> Does that, do you get that a lot? Do other people <laughs> say like, Oh man, I wish we had more time. Is that every time you talk to yep. somebody?
1: That's the whole reason these seals were like we're doing a podcast yeah, Yeah. because we started having these conversations like we we got together these Navy SEALs and I where they were like holy cow dude this is like the best mind training on the planet and we've already been through the best mind training and then they were like okay we're going down to Peru to do ayahuasca together and I was like. Okay, you know, I'd never done any exogenous psychedelics before in my life before this because I just kind of went through this whole natural process. And uh, but I was interested because I was like, well, now I got to compare it because everybody else is like, you know, starting to find these awakenings and enlightenments and stuff like that through exogenous psychedelics. And I got to compare the real deal, the natural endogenous process that I went through to exogenous psychedelics because I got to be able to say being one of the people that was struck by lightning, like, you know, the Buddha or whatever you want to call it to say, okay, this is it or this is not it. Right. You guys need to understand that if you do five MEO, you're gonna get this subset of this stuff. And you're not gonna get all of it, right? I need to be able to the person to say that. And so they're like, We're going to we're going to Peru and we're going to do ayahuasca. It's not like when two Navy SEALs are elite snipers and and, you know the most deadliest guys in the world, and you know, when they say something, they mean it. It's not like you're gonna say, Nah, I'm not going. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just a matter of time. Okay, we're going. I guess I'm going to the Amazon with these SEALs. And so uh, we went down there and we did that, and then there, and then we had some amazing conversations down there. And it was like this: it was like, yeah. oh my god, we need to record this stuff. We need yeah. to get this out and and just you know have it for our own posterity, if not share it with other people who'd be interested. And then and then I was like, two seals and a walrus, and they were like, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, we're doing shirts, we're doing a show, <laughs> we're having guests, we're having, and we've done it. We did like two. We've done like uh, I don't know, almost twenty episodes now. We had. Um, these really cool guests on like Roger Nelson from the pair project who did meditation and influenced random number generators and mm-hmm. the global consciousness project. He, he was on the father of the, of the uh, transformative technology movement, Jeff Martin, who started that whole conference was, was on, he's a friend of mine he came on early. Um, uh, you know, we're having Randall, uh, Carlson on, which is one of Joe Rogan's favorite, uh, guests who's, you know, has a ton of knowledge about, you know like sacred geometry and how all of the numbers and it's like really crazy the diameter of the sun and the diameter of the moon and the earth and all this stuff to like come together and mathematically make sense and it's it's like really cool and then the the big pyramid in egypt is like made to scale of all of this stuff that you know they understood the cosmos a lot better than we do thousands of years ago and The rain dating on the Sphinx could be tens of thousands. Like, he's coming on the show, right? Yeah. So we're doing this cool stuff. So, yeah, I love having these conversations. And, yeah, a lot of folks that I have conversations (laughs) with are like, oh, my God, we could just sit here for hours and just unpack this one little tangent that we're on. I'm like, oh, yeah, let's do it. Nice. Let's do it. (laughs) Do you know
0: much about or think about the default mode network? Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to, I'd love to hear how this, well, two questions and you can spend as much or as little time as you want, you know, thinking or answering one is what are your thoughts on the default mode network? because in my experience, and and through the science, uh, the research around uh, flotation therapy, uh, sensory deprivation tanks, is that it uh, it quiets the default mode network. And, yes, and, it does. And the concept that that the ego sort of resides maybe somewhere in that default mode network. Who are yes. you when no one's listening? Who are yeah. you? You know, um, which I think is, is is tightly aligned. And then the definition of happiness. You know, happiness is a term that's thrown away. It's it's in the name. It's 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 integrated into, into the way that you speak about emotions and consciousness and brain activity. I'd love to hear your definition of, of happiness. So those, those two questions, and then I'm just going to pop some popcorn and sit back and listen to your answers.
1: (laughs) All right. So yeah. Anyway, on the, on the float tanks, uh, I'm a fan. I have one at the house and, uh, love floating. And I agree that it's a great tool to be able to use to, um, quiet your mind. The default mode network, um, I can't find much science that is positive on the default mode network. In fact, Emory University proved that the higher your default mode network activity, the more prone you are to have major depressive disorder and experience depression and things like that. And we do – Kind of have it nailed down to this point, at least in some brain scans and stuff like that. When, when the default mode is firing, you are 20% less happy than when it's not firing, when you're on task, when the task mode network is firing, et cetera. And I explain a lot of the science in the books that uh, that I wrote, at least what we understand at this point, um, which, which – by the way, we don't understand hardly anything about the human mind or right. about the, about the, about the, the brain especially. And, uh, and we're just starting to dig into the mind itself, which I separate as two different things. The the brain is being the three pounds of jello and the mind being the experience that you have and the interface between you and the three pounds of jello. <clears throat> so, um, the default mode network is basically, you know, they call it the default mode network because that's, what happens when your mind goes into mind wandering or it's non task based functionality is it goes back to its default mode and the default mode is always thinking about your survival. It's always thinking about what is next on your to do list that would serve your goals or defend your sense of self or what are the threats that are being perceived by you every day or what you should have said in this conversation that would have defended your sense of self better. Right, it's all that bullshit. It's all that stuff connected with your ego related and of course it's gonna be connected with yourself because your primary equation of emotion is your perception that comes in, your thoughts that come in, or or the things that you see around you coming in with an appraisal process of whether that's good or bad as associated to what? To your sense of self, to all the things that matter to you, to all the things that define you, to all the things that make up your world. And if it, if you tell me about a lacrosse team in Canada winning a championship of you know high school lacrosse, I don't give a shit. Why do I not give a shit? Because I don't care about lacrosse. I don't care about Canada. God bless you, Can Canadians. I love you. I don't care about the high school. I don't care about any of the individuals on the team. I'm glad you know a team that worked hard won a championship. Woohoo! Good job. I don't care about any of the other stuff if you tell me something else because it doesn't fall on it on my self-map, right? So every bit of our default mode network goes back to our sense of self. So the cleaner you can make that sucker, the cleaner your mind is going to be. Like the less you can care about the little shit around you um, and define yourself in a different way, such as through your experience of expanded consciousness, then you're going to be able to get over the the bullshit that we've been handed that is our sense of self defined by our human mind, because I think it was uh, Lao Tzu, right? And I'm going to, I'm going to screw this one up, but it's one of my favorite quotes of all time. He said, to know that you not, that, to know that you do not know is the best to think that, you know, when you do not is a disease to recognize this disease as a disease is to be free of it. I think I almost nailed that, but wow. Here's the cool thing. Right. And he, and this, this asshole, he summed up enlightenment, (laughs) the challenges of enlightenment, enlightenment, and the afterglow of enlightenment in three lines and like dropped the mic and left. And, and, and I'm sure it probably all rhymed in ancient Chinese because he's a dick. Uh, it starts out, you know, to know that you do not know is the best. And what he's talking about is to know that you do not know your true sense of self, to know that you do not know the truth is the best, because then you'll start to seek it. And But to think that you know when you don't is a disease. And this is the, the line that, that really intrigues me the most, and he's used to the word disease, because when, when he talks about disease, what is a disease but an illness that is usually picked up and passed from one person to another inadvertently that does harm to the individual or the organization or the group of people around? And what is our sense of self but a training, right? It is when we're babies and I talk about this in a second, but when we're babies, you have this sense of self that is oceanic. It is, you are everything that you perceive around you. And there is no you and other, it is, you are, everything's going on around you. But then mom starts pointing with her finger. Hey, how are you? Are you hungry? You know, Do you want some food? Do you want to play? Do you need a nap? Do you need a change? Did you pee your diaper? You know, And then all of a sudden, you becomes this thing that's defined by the, the line of demarcation of your skin. So you become everything within you. And then she starts pointing at Aunt Patty. She starts pointing at the dog. She starts pointing at the door. She starts pointing at herself, mommy, daddy. You start to, to learn that identity starts to, to become this thing that has a body. And then later on, you start to identify with your toys. You start to identify with your things. Those are mine, right? Those are those are me. That's my control. That's my whatever. And so then you you blend you blend into this pattern of identifying as your body self as your ideas as your favorite color as your name as your gender as what that means to you as your toys as your and then it gets more complex later on your politics your religion and all the stuff that we talked about the science previously becomes your sense of self and that's why lao Tzu was calling it a, a disease and by the uh, way his name is his name is laozi l-a-o-z-i he has the second best-selling book in the planet to second to the bible by the way because of his wisdom is amazing it's called the dao de jing but he uh, that's why he said it's a disease because it's passed from one person to another. It's an idea paradigm that's passed from generation to generation to generation. We all get sick with it. It's hmm. an idea of how we look at ourselves and how we look at other people and how we defend ourselves against other people rather than recognizing them as an extension of ourselves or another version of ourselves. And that's where we go off the rails and we start having wars over resources and religions and ideas of a uh, uh, monetary system and whatever it is that uh, our way is better than their way, right? That's where that's where that starts is where we identify with self from the time that we're, you know, about six months old and, and when we start to have object uh, permanence, um, eight months and beyond, we start to identify with this sense of self and that becomes a disease. And so that's why Lao Tzu called it a disease to, because he said, uh, you know, to know, to think that you know, to think that you know, to, think that you know, to, to, to buy into the thinking that is your sense of self is a disease. Hmm. But then he said to recognize this disease as a disease is to be free of it. Because as soon as you realize, as soon as you're able to see it, as soon as you're able to experience it as a separate identity, as a separate thing within your mind, that's a process, all of a sudden you identify with the things beyond that. And then you're free of it. And the dude summed it up in three lines. Like the, he, he said more in three lines than I could say in two entire books, and he's an asshole for
0: it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's why he's Lao Tzu. Yeah. And it's why I'm, I'm only Sean Webb. Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, have not, I had not heard that quote. You're, yeah. The, thank you for breaking that down. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. He's a dude dude man, I mean, but he, here's the thing, he wrote a book that's now this best-selling book throughout you know throughout all time because yeah. he was so wise and because he had such a grasp on enlightenment, right? He had a, such a grasp on what the mind was and what the mind could do, what the limitations of the mind were that needed to become that gone beyond. Um so, you know, uh he was an amazing messenger. Hmm. He was an amazing messenger. Um and so, you know, I I hope to live up to to what he can do someday.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the definition uh, th- – this will be, the, be the, last, the last question and then I have a, a fill-in-the-blank question at the end and then we'll, we'll take this thing home. Um, how do you define happiness?
1: OK. So there's two, there are two versions of answer on that. <clears throat> one is the scientific answer and the one points to hedonic happiness. And there are two levels – there are two types of happiness that I I use as a classification when I talk about happiness. One is the the hedonic happiness, which is the simple physiological response of happiness, the the fleeting happiness, the one that's on the hedonic treadmill, the one that um, everybody thinks of as happiness but isn't really happiness. Happiness is a pleasing emotion connected with a balance of your equation of emotion. And and we never really explain the equation of emotion in depth, but you can read about it in the book. But at any point that your equation of emotion is imbalanced and the things aren't balanced, then you have a negative emotion and then there are specific rules about whether that's going to be sadness, fear, anger, worry, regret, etc. based on what the variables are. Excuse me. Then in the instance of a balanced equation of emotion is when you have all your happy emotions. But it's basically a, a nervous system response that says, OK, everything's good right now. Um, I won the lottery. My expectation and preference is that I would win the lottery. And so I'm going to be really happy for about a year, by the way, is all you get when you win the lottery. And then right. you back down to baseline, yeah. which is this, this hard science of it all. Sorry for those folks looking to win the lottery and have a great yeah. life. It's not going to happen. you got to get happiness from within. That's you, so at, that's, that's, the, that's you at your house waiting for the stereo guy. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's like okay, I'm I've, I've normalized this, and that's the function of the nervous system. By the way, when you wake up in the middle of the night, your nervous system is a big comparator, and it always just shows you the two things that are different from each other, and it always is measuring two things from each other to give you a result. And when they're close to each other, you get a pleasing result. When they're far from each other, you get a bad result. And so when you wake up in the middle of the night and you smell the gas in the middle of the house, a gas leak um and uh your body says hey there's something that's could, could could be killing us wake up and so your nervous system you smell the gas and so you get up and you look for the gas and you can't find the gas and for 10 minutes you're looking around and then I can't smell it anymore and you think well maybe I thought it was a dream and then you go to bed and it kills the whole family because the gas leak didn't go away. Your smell of it going away. Mm. This is why you get used to smells. This is why you get used to noise of a white noise generator that blocks out everything else is because your nervous system normalizes over time. Okay and so from time zero to time one the gas went from low to high and so your nervous system woke you up in the middle of the night said so the gas is high and it reported on the difference between the two. But between time one and time two, the gas remained high, stayed, started high and remained high. And then your nervous system said, OK, there's no difference. We're gonna not, not going to report it anymore. OK, the same thing happens in happiness. You go from time one to time or time zero to time one and you become happy. But then this new heightened level of happiness becomes your norm or this new heightened level of wealth, or this new heightened level of new car, or this new heightened level of new spouse, or this new heightened level of whatever it is that is brought to your life, a level of happiness becomes normalized. And then that's why it's like, what's next? What do I need to increase? I need more money. I need a better car. I need a uh, prettier spouse. I need, uh, you know, now an, another house. You know, this is why the hedonic treadmill never stops. This is why it's a treadmill. It just keeps going and going and going because your nervous system normalizes. That's what your nervous system does. You have to be conscious of that. You have to take control of that or it's going to run you your entire life and you're going to waste your your eudaimonic happiness, which is the other side of the happiness equation. The hedonic happiness is the fleeting happiness, It's the one that's going to normalize and and wane. The eudaimonic happiness has to do with um, something within you called homeostasis, which is a much deeper, it it drives every one of your individual cells. And it is a rule of the universe that says when everything's cool, we're cool, and when everything is not cool, we're going to change something to make it cool. And that's what every one of your individual cells is driven by is homeostasis. And when something's wrong for the cell, it changes something and makes it good to where um, it it can now exist in an environment that is uh, conducive for its survival. And the eudaimonic happiness is that, okay, nothing's really happening at the moment, but we're still kind of good, right? That's that feeling of well-being, that feeling of that, that, uh, inner the inner spring of wellness that forever flows if you if you're a ancient uh, uh greek fan right <clears throat> uh, uh a roman emperor uh, said that so um you know that's that place where everything is good and everything is quiet within you that you can then Feel that wellness from within you, feel that well-being from within you that naturally resides there, that has nothing to do with your external conditions of life that you expect or prefer certain things and then your perceptions are coming through and being compared to that. That's the whole happiness mm-hmm. thing. But when you're talking about joy, which I've, I equate to the eudaimonic happiness, when you're talking about joy of existence – When you're just looking at a pretty sunset or you're listening to an amazing piece of music or you're just enjoying a great meal or you're wondering, you know, you're you're uh, having an amazing conversation with somebody like right now. Uh, That joy that comes from within your heart, right, from within your existence that fires your vagus nerve, V-A-G-U-S, that connects your brain with your heart, with your gut, and all of that is just in sync. That's eudaimonic happiness. That's the happiness that I think everybody should strive for. But that happiness comes as a result of having to put away the, hedon- the hedonic happiness of your mind. Hmm. So you take your happiness of your mind, the short lived happiness, you get that bullshit out of your way. And then you're able to experience the eudaimonic happiness, the hmm. deep happiness, the longer happiness that exists uh, underneath all that. Cool. So that's kind of my definitions of it of the two happinesses.
0: That's great. That's great. Wow. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) I love this stuff, man. I I'm having so much fun. Um, however, it's time to, it's time at this, at this moment to kind of take a, take us home. And, and what I like to do is ask everyone the same fill in the blank question, which is going to put you on the spot, but I know your game. Um, you know this can be related to any anything that you have learned in your life um it can be relevant to things we talked about and um take as much time as you'd like to to expand on it. but if you would, please fill in the blank. Everyone would benefit from knowing
1: mm. that's a good question um there are a number of words that you can point to to fill in this blank for the same answer and all of them pale in comparison and all of them lead you away from the truth. So I want to put that in as a caveat, but you can, you could use that word. um, You could use the word God. You could use the word enlightenment. You could use the word source. You could use the word uh, spirit. You could use the word self with a capital S. It's all, they're all words that pale in comparison that point to the same, knowing truth that exists beneath the mind's truth and attempt to understand because understanding goes beyond picking up a book and reading it or, or understanding a concept or understanding an idea. It's an experiential thing. And so I explain my enlightenment experience most succinctly by saying I met God right and became one with God in those moments. And so I, 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 I hate to use that word because God comes with so much baggage that is connected with a number of religions, which have so long ago fallen off the path of true spirituality and a true search for God. And so everyone's religion right now, throw it in the fucking trash when I say this word, but I would say God They should know God, but know it in a way of experiential knowing, of melding and becoming one with that through the expansion of consciousness out into infinite awareness. That's what I mean when I use that one word. So, ton of caveats there. Sorry to muddle that thing up with a bunch of words that don't fit the blank, but...
0: (laughs) It's appropriate. It's appropriate. If you just said God, I would have been like, oh, come on, Sean, give me more. (laughs) What do you mean? No, that's excellent. Well, I, I've I've really enjoyed this conversation, and this is this is totally totally unique. It's useful. It's insightful. I think that if you haven't made if if people aren't aren't totally fascinated and interested in the in in what's in the book, Volume One and Volume Two, um, man, you need to. I
1: don't know. Just check them out. I mean, it's just, you know, it's called Mind Hacking Happiness because it's basically what you're doing. You're yeah. you're hacking your mind into a higher level of happiness, a higher level of consciousness, getting your own bullshit out of your way. And to the level that you want to take that, it's you can take it. I mean, if you want to take it just to the point where you're making more money and, you know uh, – Having better experiences in life and taking care of your negativity, your fear, your anger, and just turning that stuff down, you can do that. There's a physiological button in your brain that you can do that. If you want to take it all the way to enlightenment, hey, let's go, man. I, yeah. can, I can lead you the whole way. Nice. Where <laughs> where can people find you? Where can they listen to you? Where where can they connect? Okay, so we've got a website, mindhackinghappiness.com. You can check out the books on on Amazon and Audible. I read them myself. Um, I've got a number of books that are also going to be coming out, uh, after that, that are based on the same understanding of mind and then being able to apply it to like you know, parenting and, uh, business and, uh, you know, I may do a fostering book. I may do a poker book cause I, I love poker. Um, but, uh, mind hacking happen is there. And then, uh, the, the podcast with those seals is two seals and a wall as a warning. It's raw. But if you want to hear about, you know, two seals going into the Amazon jungle to do ayahuasca, that's our first four episodes to explain that whole thing and what they were able to discern and how far they were able to go on the one chemical, which was amazing. And then we talk about other consciousness stuff. You can check that out, two seals and a walrus. Um, But uh, other than that, yeah, Mind Hacking Happiness will get you there.
0: Excellent. Sean Webb, thank you so much for being today's guest on the Optimal Performance Podcast.
1: Thank you, Sean McCormick.